the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering. Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today we'll share our interview of the week with Jeff Peck, witness to history, the story of Gideon's International. We'll also talk with uh, Benjamin Watson, director of Divided Hearts of America. Uh, The abortion issue has been thrust back into the public domain with the confirmation process of Amy Coney Barrett and her pro-life views. So we're going to uh, share once again this uh, documentary and the fact that you can download that right now at SalemNow.com. So check that out. Well, there's a lot going on right now, but one of the bigger stories right here in our community, bowling alleys and skating rinks are going to be allowed to reopen here in the Portland metro area for the first time since the COVID-19 pandemic shut the businesses down some seven months ago. Now, for the few that have probably survived all of this, the Oregon Health Authority revisited its rules and they announced uh, last night that the two types of businesses could reopen in phase one counties. Uh, which were uh, where they previously had not been allowed to do so. Only four counties in Oregon are still in phase one. They are Multnomah, Washington, Clackamas, and Malheur. Well, every other county is in phase two of the state's reopening plan. Well, the health authority also released safety um, guidelines for businesses that they have to follow. They have to have at least six feet between people groups. Uh, they can be more, there rather, can be no more than 10 people in a group and total capacity is limited to 50 people, including staff. Employees and visitors must follow the state's face mask rules and businesses have to uh, close by 10 p.m. So I'm not sure how much fun you're going to have skating and bowling. But there you have it. Something else has reopened. But you can't go to school in most of Oregon. So there you have it. More than 50 million Americans have cast their ballots in the presidential election. An early voting expert said on Friday, signaling a potential record turnout for the November 3rd matchup between President Donald Trump and his challenger, Joe Biden. President Trump and the Democratic presidential nominee participated in the final presidential debate at the Curb Event Center at Belmont University in Nashville. That's in Tennessee. Uh, According to Michael McDonald of the University of Florida's election project, at least 50.95 million people have cast their ballots in person or by mail 11 days before Election Day. That's roughly one-third of the 150 million-plus ballots that uh, McDonald and other experts predict could be cast this year. Some 137 million ballots uh, were cast in the 2016 election. Well, the massive early vote total gives the Republican Donald Trump less leeway to change minds before voting concludes. Opinion polls show him trailing Biden, a Democrat, both nationally and in several battleground states that will decide who sits in the White House in January of 2021. We're also hearing that many Trump supporters are not cooperating with pollsters. So what that means in 2020, as uh, we look back to 2016 and the polls that got it wrong then, raises some real questions about how much we can rely on those outcomes. And as I always say, until we've cast those ballots and they've been counted either on Election Day or you know some months following, we don't really know who the uh, 
next president will be. Well, President Trump and uh, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden clashed over alleged foreign financial entanglements, the coronavirus, race relations, the minimum wage, climate change. It was their final presidential debate and only the second. And that was last night. At one point, Trump told Biden, you owe an explanation to the American people about your son Hunter Biden's past business dealings as the former vice president emphatically denied anything unethical took place. Well, the exchange followed uh, recent news reports of past communications between Hunter and his business partners that have raised some questions about what Joe Biden knew about these foreign dealings and whether or not he was entangled. His campaign has denied the former vice president had any involvement or made any money off the dealings. But Trump pressed his rival over the reports during the debate. And of course, the national media is not covering it. So most people have no idea what's actually known at this point. All of the emails, the horrible emails of the kind of money that you were raking in, you and your family and Joe, you were vice president when some of this was happening. And it shouldn't have uh, ever happened, the president said. I think you owe an explanation to the American people. The former vice president responded, I have not taken a penny from any foreign source ever in my life. And he added, we learned this uh, president paid 50 times the tax in China, uh, has a, a secret bank account in China, does business in China. The back and forth continued. Well, Dan Gaynor of the debate says Trump managed to drive the debate despite Welker's interruptions. That was the um, debate moderator. And he hit Biden on raising the federal minimum wage, saying we have to help small businesses and improve Trump, a tighter Biden. They landed punches in a better debate if people bothered to watch it. And again, this is an environment where at least one third of uh, the voters have already cast their ballots. Meanwhile, Hunter's ex-partner recounts a meeting with Joe Biden, claiming the family is uh, paranoid about hiding the former vice president's involvement. Hunter Biden's ex-business partner is Tony Bobolinsky. He confirmed, and by the way, was invited by Trump to attend the event. He confirmed Thursday that he met with former Vice President Joe Biden regarding his son's business dealings and alleged that someone involved in the controversy had warned him about coming forward. I was told this past Sunday by somebody who was also involved in this matter that if I went public this informa- with this information, um, it would bury all of us. Um, again, Wobolinski alleged. Well, he went on to accuse the former vice president of lying about his involvement with his son's business dealings and indicated that his family sought to conceal his activities. Specifically, he alleges that he met with the former vice president in May of 2017, introduced by his son, Hunter and brother Jim. At an appropriate hour-long meeting, or rather approximately hour-long meeting with Joe that night, we discussed the Biden's history, the Biden family business plans, um, with the Chinese, uh, with which he was plainly familiar, at least at a high level. Fox News previously obtained text messages from Bobolinsky, again, the former partner of of, uh, the younger Biden, a retired lieutenant in the U.S. Navy and former CEO of Sinohawk Holdings, which he said was the partnership involved involving the two Biden family members. The plot thickens. Hunter Biden's business associates text messages indicate there was a meeting with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and other prominent Democrats are listed as key contacts for Biden family business venture projects. Representative Duncan is blasting NPR in a scathing letter over the Biden blackout. In other news, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Minority Leader Chuck Schumer exchanged jabs on Thursday after a Judiciary Committee vote by the Senate Republicans to advance Judge Amy Coleman. It's hard to say this. Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme Court. Well, despite Democrat members boycott of the Judiciary Committee's vote on Barrett, the chairman 
He pushed forward that vote, resulting in a 12 to 0 result. But under the committee's rules, at least two members of the majority party must be present in order for there to be a quorum to transact business. Well, Democrats have claimed that Barrett's nomination was being rushed through in part to help the GOP dismantle the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. To call this process illegitimate is being too kind, Schumer said after the vote on Thursday. Senator Graham has broken the rules of the committee to move forward with a vote on Judge Barrett to rip away health care from millions, end quote. Well, in response to the Schumer-led boycott, the Judiciary Committee's vote, McConnell accused Schumer of lashing out in random ways while on the Senate floor on Thursday. Day after day, our colleagues from New York performs the same angry speech with the same falsehoods, McConnell said. I'm sorry that he feels the need to constantly say things that are false. Meanwhile, in other developments, partisan politics surrounding um, the Affordable Care Act has, re- has heated up in Colorado as the Senate votes on Barrett's confirmation. Ken Starr says Amy Coney Barrett could be the Supreme Court or on the court for four decades and become the next chief justice. And Democrats boycotting her um, hearing decry the vote as a sham. Richard Fowler says the Senate rushed uh, Barrett's Supreme Court confirmation because the GOP wants her to help Trump win the election. NBC's Kristen Welker broke the media silence by asking uh, Joe Biden if Hunter's foreign business ties were unethical. That was a surprise to many viewers. And Biden's shocks uh, debate viewers with a bizarre Hitler reference. Maybe you saw that. A New Jersey judge has thrown out a Trump campaign mail-in ballot lawsuit. Also in uh, business news, a COVID-19 vaccine is weeks away. That's according to J.J. Moderna. And Pfizer, they're leading the race. And a California appeals court has ruled that Uber and Lyft must reclassify drivers as employees. Huawei's nine-month revenue growth has slowed on U.S. restrictions. And Qantas says Australian virus travel curbs have cost it $71 million in quarterly profits. And the jobs market shows very strong trends, according to the U.S. Labor Secretary. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to also take a look at the lighter side of the news later in the program. So stay with us. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. A little later this hour, we'll take a look at some of the lighter side of the news. So stay with us. And I think James Blinn just might join me. So I'll let you know. Well, Joe Biden says that he's going to shut down the oil industry in the final debate with President Trump. He shocked everyone by promising to transition from the oil industry, and he stuck to his guns even when pressed by Trump and the moderator. Andy McCarthy points out that Trump won the night on points, but Trump wins tomorrow big when they roll the tape on fracking, oil, and Russian disinformation using Biden's own words against him. Rick Perry points out, hey, Texas and Pennsylvania, Biden just admitted he would transition from the oil industry, effectively killing an estimated 11 million jobs. Well, Trump shined in the final debate. Some are are suggesting he was calm, factual and hammered Biden on several key issues. Peggy Noonan, who was the former speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, says he did himself some good. He wasn't as uh, belligerent. Um, He held himself together, controlled himself, presented opening remarks that made sense. He won not a dazzling win, but a win that kept him in the game. He succeeded in doing what Joe Biden didn't have to do. If you want to or need to an excuse, an out to vote for Mr. Trump, if you wanted an argument that justified your decision in a, con- in a conversation in the office, he probably gave you what you needed. Well, again, we'll see what uh, what that means, given the fact that some 50 point um, I think seven million Americans have already voted. So whether or not uh, the debate made much difference for them remains, I suppose, to be seen. 
Uh, one of the reasons I mentioned the whole fracking thing was that Biden denied wanting to uh, ban fracking, but the video proves otherwise, and the president uh, presented that to make the uh, make his point. One montage shows both Biden and Kamala Harris saying that they would ban fracking not long after the debate. Trump posted the exchange, followed uh, by more samples, um, proving his point. Hugh Hewitt points out that um, Mr. Barr should appoint a special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden's allegations. He points out that he should do so before the election. Hewitt noted in a tweet the column was written before Tony Bobulinski arrived bearing gifts for the media, the Senate and the FBI. However, the media is not really interested. Also, President Trump released the Leslie Stahl 60 Minutes interview where she insisted Biden is not involved in any sort of scandal. She also said nobody spied on Trump. Byron York points out what Stahl does uh, does not mention Carter Page, George Papadopoulos. Hazra Turk, Stefan Halper, the 8-30-2016 FBI briefing, the 1-6-17 ICA briefing, and more. Taken all together, by any reasonable definition, that's spying. Well, CBS News claims uh, Trump violated an agreement by releasing the interview before 60 Minutes could air their biased cut of the uh, exchange. Pope Francis expressed his support for same-sex civil unions. It was a break from the past church teaching. Dr. Albert Moeller explains that Pope Francis has been playing a game for a very long time of leading change in the church and not admitting that that's what he's doing and effectively undermining the actual official teaching of his own church. The official doctrinal teaching of the Roman Catholic Church today, October 22, 2020, is that all homosexual desires and acts and relationships are intrinsically disordered. Apparently, Pope Francis believes otherwise. North Carolina is seeing a big increase in registered Republicans. As registered Democrats have decreased, the biggest increase comes among those unaffiliated. And Hunter Biden's business associates' text messages indicates a meeting with the former vice president, who was the vice president at the time, Joe Biden. And the Judiciary Committee has voted to subpoena Twitter and Facebook CEOs following their attempt to suppress the Hunter Biden story. Well, Trump uh, grilled Biden on fracking. Biden says his son was not uh, has not made money in China. Fact check. Pants on fire. Biden also said not a single person on private insurance lost it under Obamacare. Fact check. Not so true. Biden said that a $15 minimum wage will bail out small businesses. Well, analysts found that the minimum wage hike would kill two million jobs. And Biden sold uh, COVID fear. Trump tried to sell COVID optimism in a debate that may have come far too late for either of them. Meanwhile, NPR says it uh, won't cover Hunter Biden news because, well, it's a waste of time. And Trump released an unedited video of, video, rather, of his contentious 60 Minutes interview. Did that violate an agreement? We'll see. What could possibly go wrong? Socialist Bernie Sanders is making a play for Biden's labor secretary. And the Lincoln Project boosted Iranian disinformation that claims the Proud Boys group intimidated voters. Apparently that hasn't happened. At least 47.1 million voters uh, were cast before the election. Now that's up to 50 plus million. And at least 14 states have a record number of coronavirus hospitalizations. Remdesivir has received full FDA approval to treat coronavirus and an APA survey finds that the pandemic has led to a national mental health crisis, according to an APA survey. 74% of MS-13 gang members charged with a crime were in the United States illegally, and uh, Mr. Putin says a Russia-China military alliance could be forged in the near future. NARAL, National Abortion Rights Action League, was slammed for a tweet blasting family separation. 
which is what they support all the time. Biden falsely says America had a good relationship with Hitler. That certainly got to Twitter all ablaze. And a third-degree murder charge has been dismissed against Derek Chauvin, but he still faces second-degree charges in the death of George Floyd. Iran has been ordered to pay Robert Levinson's family $1.4 billion. This day in history, 1987, the U.S. Senate rejects the, the Supreme Court nomination of Robert Bork in a 58-42 vote. 1915, tens of thousands of women parade on up Fifth Avenue in New York City, demanding the right to vote. And on this day in history, 1973, President Richard Nixon agrees to turn over White House tape recordings subpoenaed by the Watergate special prosecutor to Judge John Sirica. 1984, BBC Television reports on the famine in Ethiopia, the story which shocks viewers, prompts rock star Bob Geldof of uh, organizing Band Aid, a group of celebrities and recording artists who would record the song, Do They Know It's Christmas for Charity? On this day in history, 2018, Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court, announces she's been diagnosed with the beginning stages of dementia, probably Alzheimer's. Well, it was uh, Joe who set the stage for the highly anticipated slugfest over foreign deal making, asked by NBC's uh, Kirsten Rec- uh, Welker rather, about intelligence that Russia and Iran were ob- obtaining American election data. Biden took a shot at President Trump's buddy, Rudy Giuliani, being used as a Russian pawn. That opened the door for the promised uh, Trumpian attack on Hunter Biden, and he raced right through it. Well, it was an improved Trump, a tighter Biden that landed punches in a better debate. The question is how many Americans um, who saw it had yet to uh, cast their ballot. As I mentioned, about a third potential voters have already cast their ballot. And this final debate is quite late and only the second in the series. Some of the highlights of that debate were the Hunter story, allegations that have surfaced in recent days were brought up by the former president or by the president, rather, and by the moderator. And immigration, another contentious moment in the debate came as the candidates. They sparred over immigration policy. Trump attacked Biden for the Obama-Biden administration's catch and release policy in which those in the country illegally were allowed to walk free ahead of their court dates. Uh, And Biden, meanwhile, attacked Trump on the current administration's family separation policy, which before it ended in 2018 was highly controversial. Another highlight uh, was uh, surrounding minimum wage after the moderator asked Biden about whether increasing the minimum wage to $15 per hour might hurt small business. Biden appeared not to understand the question and advocated for small business bailouts. Trump shot back that minimum wage should be a state uh, option because Alabama is different from New York which is different from Vermont. Race relations, an issue that I think many were anticipating in this debate, Biden was at his most effective when delivering one-liners, either attacking Trump or highlighting what kind of president he would be. Among them were comments that he would shut down the virus, not the country, and that Trump, although he, anyway, that contradicts what he's earlier said, although um, Trump, uh, that Trump rather, should have been instead in the sand trap at his golf course, he should have been negotiating with Nancy Pelosi. Well, it went back and forth from there. Coronavirus was also a a major issue um, in which the former vice president said of Trump's handling of the pandemic, anybody responsible for that many deaths should not remain president of the United States, which is certainly a stretch to say that that individual is responsible for the deaths of COVID-19, a a virus. But nonetheless, um, Joe Biden also said we're about to go into a dark winter 
a dark winter. I'm not sure what that meant and if he expects that that would change if he were elected president. Well, this was the last debate among the uh, two uh, contenders, and we're just days away from the election. And as I mentioned, more than 50 million voters have already cast their ballots in early voting, and this is 11 days before Election Day. So hope you're praying for the outcome, not just for your candidate to win, but Lord, thy will be done. Uh, our nation needs your uh, intervention in guiding us in the right direction. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news just because I don't know about you, but I need to take a look at it. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're determined to take a look at some of the lighter side of the news. Joining me in that endeavor is James Blend. Welcome, James. Why, thank you. That was a wonderful welcome. Well, we're going to start right off from the beginning in the category of it could be worse. There's a hairy caterpillar with venomous spines. It's found in Virginia. It's prompted a warning. We don't have them here. It could be worse if we were in Virginia. Well, this um, venomous caterpillar is called the asp caterpillar. It's from uh, southern flannel moth. It's recognized as one of the most venomous species found in the United States, and its sting can be debilitating. We don't have them here. Even in 2020, we're not facing the prospect of the venomous asp caterpillar of the southern flannel moth. Now, I have seen a picture of them. They, they, I would say they most closely resemble the uh, 1980s hairstyle, the mullet. Yes, they actually do. I've never seen anything quite like this particular moth. Uh, officials there are um, warning residents about the breed of hairy-looking caterpillars. And we say hairy, we mean, you know, it's look like a comb-over kind of uh, a, a faux hawk or something because it's the, the hair is quite long. Anyway, it was recently spotted in this, the estate. It's among the most venomous in the nation. So the Department of Forestry there uh, said on Facebook, its forest health team received reports that it's been cited and they're trying to take the whole thing in hand. But, you know, it could be worse. We are not dealing in the year 2020 in the Pacific Northwest with the um, hairy caterpillar, also known as the asp caterpillar of the southern flannel moth. It definitely so could be worse. Yeah, it absolutely could be worse. Uh, then there's this. The Norwegian official responsible for daylight saving time in the country apologized <laughs> to his nation for adding an additional hour to what has already been a very demanding year. Literally apologized to the nation. His duties as Minister of Trade and Industry include implementing daylight saving time, said the clocks will be set back an hour on Sunday morning there in accordance with the traditional time change. As Minister of Time, he says, I strongly regret that 2020 will be another hour longer. Uh, this has already been a very demanding year to many. Well, she encouraged Norwegians to look on the brighter side of the time change. When we set the clock back, the night uh, gets an hour longer. That means that when you get up on Sunday, the sun has managed to get a little further up uh, above the horizon at the same time of the day before. And we get a brighter morning when we get up and uh, it's brighter than it otherwise would have been. So there's the brighter side. Uh, she's suggesting the European Parliament voted in 2019 to back a proposal to do away with the twice yearly daylight saving time chains with a goal of eliminating it by 2021. The proposal hasn't been ratified by the European Council yet. Uh, but again, the apology from the Norwegian official responsible for daylight saving time spoken loudly and clearly to the people there who've had just about enough 
of the year 2020. Now, ours is coming up in a couple of weeks as well, isn't it? Yeah, uh, November 1st, I believe it is. So uh, exactly a week from tomorrow night, uh, we'll go ahead and fall back on those uh, uh, clocks before we uh, fall asleep, preferably. Uh, Otherwise, Sunday morning turns out to be confusing. And by golly, you don't want to be late for virtual church. (laughs) No, you really don't. Although more churches are gathering in um, very creative ways. I was at, uh, where was I? Um, Crossroads in Vancouver yesterday. The building was empty, but I was there and they are meeting in smaller groups at various places throughout the large facility. And I think a lot of the larger churches are doing that. And for smaller churches, they can... Um, hold a smaller number of people, but they're also starting to gather. So that's encouraging to hear that people are actually yeah, being the, encouraged uh, by fellowshipping with one another. Little by little, uh, you know, the church doesn't stay down. That's right. Of course, it wasn't down even when we couldn't meet, but I, I right. take your point. Well, a Minnesota woman's obituary says, in lieu of flowers, do not vote for Trump. So life, death, it doesn't matter. People are as political as they have ever been. Well, this was an obituary for a Minneapolis area woman who died at the age of 93. Uh, She included one specific request for her mourners. Do not vote for Donald Trump. Well, Georgia May Atkins of Inver Groves Heights died of a stroke on the 28th of September at a hospital there. A pair of obituaries published in the St. Paul Pioneer Press included details of how she wanted to be cremated and then honored uh, with an October 16th church service under COVID-19 protocols. And she preferred that her friends and family not patronize a florist. In lieu of flowers, the, uh, the older woman, now deceased, said she preferred that you do not vote for Trump. That was her obituary from October 11th. Now, the request made the rounds on social media. It attracted admiration and condemnation from others. The Pioneer Press reported on Facebook, a grandchild uh, joined in on one of the conversations and said her grandmother was fierce every day and remained so through her legacy. Well, Atkins was uh, preceded in death by her husband and her first uh, husband. Apparently, he uh, passed away, as well as her sister, son, daughter, and stepdaughter. She is survived by three granddaughters, a son, two stepdaughters, 17 grandchildren, 24 grandchildren, and one great-great-grandchild. And her uh, obituary read, as she intended, don't vote for Trump, don't buy me flowers. Now, the truth is, this woman now could care less about what's happening here on Earth and this election, but she made her point in her obituary. Well, and you know, the other thing obviously is, you know, when you have somebody who's 93, you know, it's one of those people that can refer to the candidates. One of the few that can refer to those as those wacky kids. <laughs> well, that's true too for the 70, what four and 77 year olds. Yeah, exactly. Well, a real winner of the 2020 election might be this Pennsylvania bakery. Uh, they have, uh, they claim that their cookie sales have predicted past presidential elections and, Here's how it looks for 2020. This is according to a family-owned bakery in the town of Hatboro, again, claiming that its election-themed cookies, which are currently flying off the shelves, have accurately predicted the outcome of the past three presidential elections. So far, they say sales indicate a clear leader for the 2020 race, too. Now, let me just uh, offer a disclaimer. Cast your ballot. Don't rely on this um, bakery to determine the outcome, and you decide, I'm just not going to go to the polls. But so far, they say sales indicate a clear leader 
for 2020 as well. Well, the bakery is located in Montgomery County, just north of Philadelphia. It launched its most recent cookie poll about six weeks back, offering both Trump 2020 cookies and Biden 2020 cookies in red and blue, respectively. Well, this year's sales, however, are unlike anything the bakery has ever seen during the last four election cycles. People are going crazy for them, the bakery owner says in a statement, adding that the shop usually only sells a few hundred each election. Well, since debuting this year's cookie, however, uh, they've already sold thousands of the treats and demand doesn't seem to be dwindling anytime soon. Well, on Friday morning, they announced on Facebook that the bakery sold out of its supply of the previous day, forcing the shop to close early to bake, recoup and stock. Uh, We will open at 6 a.m. until um, uh, but until then. Uh, they could sell out again from the top. They from the shop. They said if we sell out, uh, we're going to close early again. And it's now instituting a six cookie limit for all walk-in customers. The bakery has uh, further announced that it would only accept advance orders of 100 cookies or more. Well, that's not to say the bakers aren't happy to oblige customers near and far. Uh, they also have a bit of fun with the whole thing. Uh, she personally, the owner, tallies up the sales after every day. So far. As of 10 a.m., Trump was in the lead three to one, uh, despite the quadrennial cookie off, as they're calling it. The bakery claims that its contest isn't aiming to make any political statements, but rather provide a fun outlet for the community and beyond. Now, in in terms of politics, to have a fun outlet is probably something we all need. So three to one on the cookies. Now, this, of course, is not a scientific poll. It can't be relied upon to tell us anything Uh, That will happen, but it has in the last few years reflected the outcome of the election. Your thoughts, uh, James? My thoughts are, well, obviously, you know, you you need to sample all cookies. And, you know, the, the one thing is it does tell us something. It does tell us intrinsically something important. Cookies are yum. That's true. And that maybe Trump supporters have a more of a sweet tooth than Biden supporters. Well, I mean, you certainly have seen, you know, the, the president where maybe a little less sugar could have been, been appropriate. But uh, other than that, I think that, uh, you know, the sweet tooth is a good thing. I'm OK with that. I'm OK with a nice, good, sweet cookie. Can you tell I skipped lunch today? Hey, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at some of the lighter side of the news. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jeff Pack, author of Witness to History, the story of Gideon's International. It's our interview of the week. And we'll share a conversation I had with Benjamin Watson, former NFL uh, player, and his new documentary, Divided Hearts of America, which is currently streaming on SalemNow.com. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at some of the lighter side of the news for the day. Well, I don't know if you saw it or not, but at one of the uh, latest Trump rallies, the president engaged in something of a dance. It's gone viral on TikTok. I think the cautionary tale here is that if you're a politician and you haven't been formally trained in dance, you probably should refrain from dancing to music that's played. You've got Hillary Clinton, George W. Bush, and now you've got Donald Trump. Um, Like many politicians before the current president, he was caught dancing in public, uh, this time to YMCA when it blared at a recent rally. Not only has a clip of the presidential dance gone viral, maybe you've seen it, James, it sparked a trend on popular 
uh, the video app TikTok. Now, the Associated Press said Trump ends most of his rallies with this dance. His own unique take on the YMCA, rather than doing the typical moves to spell out the title of the song, the president starts with his arms, clenched fists, pumping back and forth, sometimes to the beat, sometimes not, as though he's on an elliptical trainer. The president's jig, as they're calling it, involves clapping, waving, head bobbing, and sometimes pointing into the crowd. Now, some may call it a dad dance. He is, after all, a dad. Um, It's a trend uh, former President Obama has also been known to partake in. I guess politicians feel like you can't just really break out and bust a move. You have to maintain some decorum, but somehow they just haven't gotten it quite right. I think they need to hire a choreographer. Any politician that aspires to national office needs to hire a choreographer so that they can map out the steps or the moves that would be appropriate to any given beat that might come up in the course of a campaign or during the administration. If, for example, you're traveling to Africa, you're in Nigeria, and the tribal drums are starting to play, have something already in your toolkit that you have received from a choreographer. How to move so that you don't become the news for the next week and a half, as George W. Bush did. And now President Trump has. Well, on TikTok, the app um, the president famously threatened to ban, people are recreating Mr. Trump's dad dance. I mean, literally. Now, many of the TikTokers are pairing their videos with a particular mashup of two songs, Coldplay's Viva La Vida and Savage's Swing. So they're using different music, but same effect. Many are also continuing uh, creating duets or side-by-sides of themselves dancing next to a video of the president. One TikTok user started the trend, according to the Miami Herald. Well, the president's daughter and advisor, Ivanka Trump, even tweeted a video of Keith doing the uh, Trump. Whether or not TikTok users are mocking Mr. Trump or celebrating with him is up for debate. And likely many TikTok trends, the uh, Trump dance may be fleeting. Did you see the the dance, James? Yeah, I've seen it a couple times. Most recently, actually, today, uh, where they had uh, superimposed the video from the original dance into uh, debate footage from yesterday. (laughs) So he appeared to be dancing behind his podium. And I have to admit, even though I have no idea what the song was that they were playing, I laughed. I got to be honest. I laughed. (laughs) The original song was YMC, or at least the most recent version of it. But yeah, that would be hilarious. I mean, you know, and then the, uh, you know, it's, it's not every day that and politicians repeatedly do this, but uh, the, uh, you know, anything that uh, makes uh, the uh, dance, the, the, the Elaine, I think they call it from Seinfeld. Uh, yeah. any, anybody that makes that look like Fred Astaire is, is worthy of some, I would say, gentle prodding. Uh, what do you so think about I've, my suggestion that... I, these politicians hook up with a uh, choreographer and learn a few moves ahead of time to avoid this whole thing. I am 100% not sure it helps. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like maybe oh. by the time they get to that point where they're on the national stage in their political career, perhaps it's a couple of years too late. <laughs> maybe so. Well, let's just put it this way. If you are an aspiring politician, if you aspire learn dance to now. national office – Start getting training now. Uh, you, you need to have a few moves in your tool belt that you can refer to. It might be the same move. You just revert to the same thing. Uh, but it's able to you can adapt to the different beats and the tempo and so on. But be prepared for this sort of thing because it will come up. Yeah, you don't want to get to the big stage and then look like uh, the robot from the Jetson shorting out. <laughs> Uh, you have to admit it is cringeworthy, but also quite entertaining to see politicians just, you know, they're just regular people. And, you know, how many politicians spent time training in dance 
that's uh, that's not their um, their forte, but it's still pretty comical to see them attempting to relate to the masses uh, in breaking out in a move on the campaign trail. Absolutely. Well, being cooped up at home due to the pandemic paid handsomely for a Minnesota horticulture teacher who used the extra time to constantly water and feed a massive pumpkin that recently won this year's Half Moon Bay Pumpkin Contest in California. Uh, the individual from Minnesota spent a lot of free time in the pumpkin patch in his backyard, watering the plant up to 10 times a day, feeding and fertilizing them at least twice a day. The 40-year-old then drove uh, the gargantuan gourd for 35 hours to see his hard work pay off at the 47th World Championship Pumpkin Way-Off in Half Moon Bay, south of San Francisco, where his winner came in at 2,350 pounds. And my question is, how do you get that in the back of the truck or out again? Um, it was nerve-wracking because with every bump in the road, I kept thinking it's going to uh, – it's not going to make it. And then finally, it got weighed. It was the uh, last one. And oh, my gosh, says the uh, pumpkin grower. It's been incredible. Well, a farmer from Anoka, or maybe it's Anoka, uh, Minnesota, strikes a triumphant pose after the winner of the Safeway World Championship Pumpkin Way Off in Half Moon Bay, California. A landscape and horticulture teacher. Uh, they've been growing pumpkins since uh, this individual was a teenager, inspired by his dad, who also grew them. And that was the first time competing at the Half Moon Bay Way Off, but he's not sure he'll be back next year. I might need a year off from the work and the nerves that took to um, grow this particular pumpkin, but congratulations on a 2,000 pound, I should say 2,350 pound pumpkin. I'm not sure I'd have the I'd want to pay the water bill, the patience, or the time to achieve that goal, but that's a big pumpkin. That's a very big pumpkin. What do you do with those things after you've grown them to that gargantuan status? Uh, did he leave it there? Did he take it back home? One wonders. Make a bunch of pies? What do you do I with I would have it? made the pies. I would have gone the pie, the pie route myself. Absolutely. Well, a British foreign office um, had a cat that uh, had been there for many years, and the cat is now retired. 2020, why not? It's from Palmerston, uh, the cat, uh, who's lived at the foreign office for four and a half years, will trade his London residence for retirement in the countryside, where his mouse-catching duties for the uh, diplomats will come to an end. Apparently, that's the employment the cat had previously uh, in the uh, British foreign office. Writing to the more than 100,000 followers on his Twitter feed, I've enjoyed climbing trees and patrolling the fields around my new home in the countryside, he wrote sort of, to the foreign office, most recent civil servant, Simon McDonald, signing off with two paw prints. I will miss hearing the footsteps of an ambassador and sprinting to my hideout to see who it is. There will be uh, no wider reshuffle as Larry the Cat remains on Downing Street, while fellow feline Gladstone retains his post at the finance ministry. But only in this case, Palmerston, the cat in the foreign office, has gone on to his reward, so to speak. Well, the question has to be, obviously, you know, what type of pension is he drawing as well? That's I mean, a good what question. What's, what's the expense to the British taxpayer in this situation? Very good question. Because I'm sure the other two cats that are in uh, uh, still on their posts are going to want to know what they can anticipate when retirement comes for them. I, I would I would watch the uh, is it the prime minister questions that they show that you can watch, uh, you know, once a week on uh, C-SPAN. Uh, mm -hmm. But. I tried watching one about a month ago, and because of social distancing, there's like five ministers there. It's gotten boring. <laughs> yeah, well, 
hasn't a lot of things Yep. or haven't a lot of things. Well, animal rescuers in California made an early morning visit to a bank to chase away an unusual pair of masked bandits. Oh, I know what you're thinking, masked. No, they weren't uh, wearing masks over their faces, their mouths. They were wearing masks over their eyes. The Pennsylvania Humane Society and SPCA said personnel responded to the Chase Bank branch in Redwood City after receiving a call from a bank customer who spotted the animals through a window while using an ATM outside the building. Well, what are we referring to? She said they were raccoons. It's not every day an animal organization gets called to deal with a bank break-in, but since the bank robbers were masked bandits of the wildlife kind, they were indeed the appropriate responders. She said raccoons were reluctant to leave, as would anyone who has access to a bank. The bank manager led our rescue staff into the bank, and after about 10 minutes of chasing the raccoons around the bank, we were finally able to safely shoo them outside. They apparently didn't want to leave the bank. I mean, it's a bank after all. Uh, There were muddy paw prints on a tree outside the bank, so they suspect the raccoons climbed the tree to the roof of the bank and then somehow managed to crawl into an air duct and fell through the ceiling tiles onto the floor where they were rather confused. Anyway, wearing a mask in these circumstances will get you picked up, maybe not the ASPCA, but by some organization that doesn't want you roaming around unaccompanied in a facility of that nature. Well... At least they were caught. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back after news and traffic here at the top of the hour, we'll share our interview of the week with Jeff Pack, Witness to History, the Story of Gideon's International. By the way, the book has a fascinating uh, series of uh, pictures from that history. We'll talk uh, with Jeff Pack as our interview of the week. And we'll hear from Benjamin Watson as his documentary continues to be available, Divided Hearts of America, on SalemNow.com, streaming right now. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I think most of us are familiar with the Gideons, but are we really informed about who they are, when they began, and what their core values are? I don't think I've ever spent an evening in a hotel without finding a Gideon Bible in the drawer. It is reassuring, it's comforting, and to think of the work that they've done over decades is exciting to me. Well, since its inception, more than two billion scriptures have been placed and distributed by the Gideons, not just in hotels, by the way. Jeff Peck writes about this in his latest book. He says the rapid moral decline of post-Christian societies means there's an even greater need for seeing and hearing God's word. But today we face some new challenges. Well, he's the author of Witness to History. It's the story about the Gideons that few people know. At a time when distributing Bibles in hotels and schools and businesses often comes with opposition, he says it's more important to do so now than ever. He cites opposition from organizations like the Freedom From Religion Foundation, but says this is not the time to withdraw from providing the words of life. So I'm excited that we're going to talk about the Gideons and the book we're uh, discussing, Witness to History, the Story of the Gideons International. Well, my guest is Jeff Pack. He is a marketing professional and former director of communications for the Gideons International. He's also speaker for the Gideons in churches and other events. He has uh, helped build several technology companies, and he sits on the boards of several nonprofits serving Nashville's refugee community. So he's from Nashville. We're just delighted to welcome Jeff Pack. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you, Georgine, and uh, greetings from Nashville. 
You know, I think most of us think we're familiar with the Gideons, but I think the depth and breadth of your work is probably lesser known than just the name itself and the Bibles we find when we're staying at a hotel or a motel anywhere across the country. Let's begin with the history and where the Gideons began and where they got the name. Sure. Um, the Gideons began in 1899 in Janesville, Wisconsin, and it was put together by the founders who were traveling salesmen, um, and they would go across the country, you know, leave on Sunday night and come back on uh, Friday night, uh, staying in hotel lobbies. And uh, it was kind of the salesman at the time had a poor reputation for gambling and profanity. And so the three men, uh, John Nicholson and Sam Hill and uh, Bill Knights, um, got together. They Two of them happened to be in the same room one night at a hotel in Janesville. And um, they uh, just started thinking about what would an association be like if we could put it together that could hold men accountable. So in the early years, it was really just an accountability um, be- between the, the members, and it grew rapidly, and they had emblems, so they were known wherever they uh, would go on trains uh, across the country. And really what we're known for, the Bibles didn't come along until about uh, you know, a decade later in uh, 1908 um, when they had the idea of placing these Bibles in the hotel rooms uh, since they were all traveling there anyway, and it was Mm -hmm. great uh, as their witness to go ahead and start that. So that's how really we got started. You know, as uh, you mentioned, most people are familiar with the Gideons placing Bibles in hotels, but it really is about so much more. You mentioned the goal of uh, these men holding one another accountable as they're traveling across the country. But placing Bibles in places uh, like hotels, but not limited to hotels, was not the primary goal. Can you talk a little bit about what the goal was and is and some of the other places that Bibles were placed by the Gideons? Sure. Um what uh, our goal is really the association of uh, Christian business and professional men for service. Uh, that would be our personal testimony and sharing our personal work and placing Bibles or portions thereof uh, ac- across the world. Now we're in 200 countries and where we place the Bibles, the majority of them go into schools and uh, universities uh, and students across the world still to this day, more so outside of the country uh, will distribute 70 million scriptures this year, about 10% of those will be in the United States, and the rest will go all across the globe. Uh, Largest uh, growing countries uh, where our work is is India, uh, Philippines, Brazil. So the scriptures will go to students, and they'll go into hospitals, uh, which we started in the 1920s. They'll go into uh, the military all across the world, which we started that in the 1940s with the World War II. That's just incredible. 2.4 billion Bibles uh, and New Testaments distributed to date. That is an incredible number. Now, I mentioned in the introduction that um, during the time when the Bibles were first distributed, there was uh, there were challenges. Do you believe our culture now is more open to or increasingly hostile to Christianity and to God's Word in particular? It depends on where you are, obviously, in the mm-hmm. world. Some places in uh, Africa, it's very easy for us to walk into, um, you know, any school and uh, distribute uh, scriptures. Um, I've been chased by nuns in Argentina uh, <laughs> trying to distribute <laughs> scriptures. 
and you know i've been <laughs> welcomed and both uh asked to leave uh at uh, distributions in the united states so as far as the, the our culture in general is pretty hostile i mean pick a subject um it's gotten that way uh christianity you know i think um martin luther had said that you know we shouldn't be startled by persecution but strengthened mm-hmm. by it and uh you know as christians you know you can go Back as far as Job five seven, where you know man is born to trouble. Uh, surely as sparks fly upward, I think of that every night when I light a fire in my backyard. So, but uh, w- the way we handle it is the key: is that we approach it with compassion and not anger, and that's the hard part. I know that placing Bibles is one aspect of the work of the Gideons, but also uh, encouraging people to read the scriptures and to be guided by. Of the scriptures that have a relationship with Jesus. Can you talk a bit about how that part of the emphasis is is carried out? Uh, I think we tend to think of Gideon's as placing a Bible anonymously walking away, but that's only a part of the work. Right. And, um, you know, we, like on a campus, we'll go there and we'll actually, um, uh, you know, discuss and have conversations with people. It's funny uh, that some campuses actually allow us on in the freedom of speech area on the campus. Uh, and how, uh, you know, we try to feel, um, you know, I, you know, always have said pe- people never feel welcome in our churches until they feel welcome in our lives. So we try to establish relationship with people as we go uh, along in our um, daily um, work of uh, distributing scriptures. That could be in everything from the grocery store now uh, to restaurants. And really just trying to help people get them in a church. It doesn't have to be my church. It just try to you know, point them in the right direction of getting the church and then the pastors that we work with take over from there. You, in the press release that I received from uh, your representative, you point out that Bible-centeredness is decreasing and skepticism is growing. And the percentage of adults who read the Bible daily has dropped from 14% to 9%, which is an unprecedented drop of 5%, according to Barna Research. It's amazing to me to consider that only 14% um, of, of adults read the Bible on a regular basis. So that's a challenge for uh, anyone and certainly for the Gideons. Right. And I think it's uh, what Christians have, uh, I think, 4.4 Bibles in their houses each. Uh, so reading and understanding it has always been um, mm-hmm. you know, a difficult trip and also, you know, the work of the devil to be able to do everything you can to keep it from that. Uh, sometimes I think people will see more scripture in their Facebook reads uh, than they will out of their Bible sitting on the uh, you know, kitchen table. Now, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, I would love to give you an opportunity to share some of the stories because it's uh, it's incredible to consider how God's word, when placed in the hands of some individuals by the Gideons, it has transformed their lives personally, it has saved their lives physically, and has had a tremendous impact. So uh, just emphasizing the necessity and the benefit of God's word is one of the things I respect so much about the Gideons. But we'll get into that in just a moment. Again, we're talking with Jeff Pack. He is the uh, author of Witness to History. The story of the Gideons International, which is uh, fascinating when you consider these men who wanted to hold one another accountable, grew into an organization that has placed God's word in uh, places where people frequent uh, over the last, uh, what, 120 years. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Jeff Pack. He's the author of Witness to History, the story of the Gideons International. He is a marketing professional and former director of communications for the Gideons International. He's also a speaker for the Gideons in churches and other events. Well, just before the break, I um, invited you to talk about uh, some of the stories of people whose lives have been transformed by God's word, whether that is their their inner life or even their their physical life being preserved. Can you give us a short story about the the Gideons, uh, of a story of those who have received scriptures from the Gideons and the impact that has had? Uh, uh, Staff Sergeant Aaron Zahn is one example that comes to mind. Yeah, that's um, oldie but goodie. Um, yeah. Aaron Zahn was um, uh, from North Dakota, and he was in the war in 1945. He was stationed in Frankfurt, Germany. And uh, when his unit came under attack, uh, he felt something hit his chest. And so he reached in his front pocket, and that's where he kept his Gideon New Testament. Uh, and as he took it out, he saw that the bullet had just penetrated uh, the New Testament and not his heart. And so he was curious as to where the bullet stopped, and it stopped right on Psalm 27, which is, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Now, that's great news, and we've had lots of people, lots of stories, even in the Vietnam War, of where, you know, they keep them in their top pocket, and and sometimes the bullets would hit there, and the New Testaments would uh, save them. So it's an incredible story, you know, hard to believe, but that's That's precisely what happened. Well, tell us some uh, stories that may be a bit more up to date, because there are plenty about how God's word has impacted the lives of those who have received it in connection with the Gideons. Sure. Now, uh, Georgine, I know you're a musician. So you'll I am. Appreciate this thing. <laughs> uh, back in uh, the 1960s, there was a musician named Tommy, and uh, he had some hits on the radio, uh, but he also hit big with the booze and the pills and had no fear of chemicals and uh, um, so lots of damages to hotel rooms, as we know musicians will sometimes do, not us. Uh, then one night in the Holiday Inn, he uh, picked up a Gideon Bible. And at the time, Tommy was into UFOs, um, spaceships, and time travel. And he opens up the Gideon Bible to Ezekiel, of all places. And as we know, that's full of uh, wheels in the sky, chariots, blue crystals, Um and Tommy said, well, that's really God talking to me. But uh, then he got on with drinking and he went to the next city, the next tour. When he gets to the next city, he gets in a hotel and he sees a Bible. Now he thinks they're following him. So <laughs> he gets the Bible back out and he's reading it. And it's right there. He said, look, I'm just tired of, of this. I'm tired of my life. And he gave his life to Christ. Uh, the gentleman was Tommy James of Tommy James and the Shondells. And he went on to write a number one song about his conversion, which is Crystal Blue Persuasion. Isn't that amazing? And most people would have no idea what that that song is about. (laughs) There'll be peace and good, brotherhood, Crystal Blue Persuasion. So, (laughs) you know, that's one good story. We can go on and on. A more recent one, maybe, um, um, is a gentleman by a student named Craig. And uh, Craig was going to the uh, Oklahoma City University. Uh, and he joined a fraternity where he got in a l- little bit of trouble. So to uh, keep the fraternity uh, on campus, he pledged, well, uh, he'll start a Bible study in the fraternity house. Well, on the day before the first Bible study, he didn't have a Bible. And there, behold, walking across campus was a Gideon passing out Bibles that day. And he took that little New Testament and he started a small little Bible study in the basement of that fraternity. 
Uh, well, Craig kept growing that small little study to become Life Church. His name is Craig Groeschel, and he now has a church with over 30,000 people in Edmond, Oklahoma. So we never know. Just where one little Bible having an impact on the lives one. of those who received it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> well, what what were or are the drummers, and how did they fit into the outreach plan of of the Gideons? Sure. The drummers is uh, the term they used to use for uh, sales people that they would actually just you know go out and drum up new business. So each of the um, three men who started the Gideons, and by the way, you asked me about the name, it comes from Gideon 7, uh, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, Judges 7 and the Gideon story there. Uh, but all of them were drummers, and uh, they would just be out on trains. Like I say, Sunday night they go out, Friday night they come back in. And uh, that's kind of where the, the term drummer, which is, you know, uh, salesman now. Yeah. Now, who are the Gideons today? We're we're familiar with that history now of what, uh, how it started. But who are the drummers today? Who are the men and and women who are distributing scriptures today? Are they from all walks of life, or do they tend to be among those who travel? Uh, it's people who are out in public uh, mostly. It'll it'll be businessmen still, lots of salespeople, uh, managers, and uh, people who have uh, time as well to be able to devote to the ministry and a flexible schedule. But you'll find we have uh, everything from doctors to lawyers and such, um, and um, it, it just continues to grow throughout. Uh, the world, each uh, you know, country is a little bit different profiles, but they're all professional men and women, and, uh, men and their wives, and uh, with one purpose to reach, uh, you know, boys and girls, men and women, uh, to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And today, there's about a quarter million uh, members in over 200 countries, um, and we're able to pass out scriptures in about 100 languages. Do you find it more challenging today to play scriptures? Uh, do you, you mentioned a couple of examples where you have uh, faced opposition. Is that more common today or, uh, or not? Uh, it's been uh, around us, you know, since the beginning. In the 1950s, there was a lot of uh, objection to passing out Bibles. Uh, in, the, in the 60s, uh, you know, prayer was taken out of schools. Uh, in, in the 70s, we were able to go on campuses, which, you know, uh, college campuses are a little bit more liberal. Uh, but then uh, towards the 80s and 90s, had a lot of opposition from public schools. The Gideons always go by the law or by what the school board tells us, um, you know, there'll be, um, you know, uh, people out there defending it. In fact, I think one of your guests, Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, we've worked with before. Um, and so there's always someone there to help us. But we, j- if we just, you know, s- stay in our guardrails and, and do what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to do it, uh, we tend to be able to keep going. In schools, where we've had lots of opposition, um, you know, maybe in the, in the South, a little bit easier in the North and maybe get a little harder. Um, and uh, we've been able to develop uh, the life book, which is a, the, the book of Mark. And they're able to, we're able to work with the churches in their youth groups and be able to have them take it and share it with their friends. So we're working mm-hmm. through the pastors, through the uh, youth pastors, with just a really, you know, kind of um, teen version of uh, the book of Mark. And they're able to share it with their friends in the places where we can't really get into. So God, you know, always gives us a witty invention as the Bible says. And, uh, you know, that's uh, been our uh, latest way of being able to reach uh, students. Excellent. What do you think our um, our listeners might find most surprising about the Gideons? Um, 
Well, they, they should walk away with a, a, you know, a good history of uh, each chapter is a decade. So um, each chapter profiles the, you know, the events that happened during that decade and where the Gideons fit into that. For instance, when Russia fell, we were right behind there walking uh, you know, Bibles across the uh, border as it fell. Uh, Berlin Wall, the same. And uh, as a decolonization of Africa, we were able to go into each, in the 50s and the 60s, we were able to go into each uh, of those countries as they uh, got their freedom. Um, so you'll, you'll pick up the history, but I think what you'll learn also is that, um, you know, as I say in the book, that uh, everything has changed, but nothing is different. People still mm. need Jesus That's after right. all these years. Um, you know, we don't have to make the Bible relevant. Uh, we just have to show its relevance. Absolutely. Well, I am so appreciative of your providing us with a resource to learn the history of the Gideons. I'm grateful for the work that has been done over the last 120 years to place God's word wherever it's been welcome and in some places where it's been unwelcome. And I thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. One final question. If our listeners are interested in uh, the Gideons, perhaps in, in the outreach, what's the best way for them to learn more? Sure. Um, the best place for the book and to learn a little bit about the Gideons um, uh, is witness to history.org. Again, that's witness to history.org. And you can find information about uh, the book as well as the ministry there and the way to order it, um, you know, to toll free today. Witness to history.org. Hey, Jeff Pack, thank you so much for talking with us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Georgine. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I have to tell you, I'm pretty thrilled to talk with former NFL star Benjamin Watson. And you might think, you know, we're going to talk about football. But no, he's about other things these days. The former NFL star wants to challenge and educate America on the subject of abortion with his new documentary. Well, the Super Bowl champion is the co-executive producer with his wife, Kirsten, of Divided Hearts of America. It's a pro-life movie on Salem Now streaming. Now, he says it's about human dignity, it's about the sanctity of life, and about empathy, that even though we may disagree on the subject, we need to see humanity in one another. He's the father of seven, the co-chair of the One More Foundation. He um, uh, interviewed more than 30 leaders on both sides of this issue. That had to be a a challenge um, to look at how America became so divided on abortion and to dive into where the nation is headed if the course doesn't change. Uh, My guest, Ben Watson, is a uh, husband and a father. He owns a Super Bowl ring, but he's uh, more importantly a man of faith. He is a pro-life advocate. He's a husband and a father. And we're just delighted to have you with us to talk about your new film, Divided Hearts of America. Welcome. Hello, Georgine. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, of all the things you might choose to do, why a film about abortion in America that not doesn't just convey your view on the subject, but you wanted to go deeper and you talk to people on the entire spectrum of the subject of abortion? What motivated you to take this on? Well, it's kind of a strange topic for a first um, foray into film, I would say. But uh, <laughs> we are you know, in a time when when um, this is a very important topic. And it's always an important topic whenever it's life and death, which um, I believe abortion is. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that, that strikes right at the heart of America when it comes to issues of justice, issue, issues of life and liberty. Uh, and, and we are very, very divided on it. And so uh, my wife, Kirsten, and I have been involved with uh, supporting pregnancy centers in different ways. Uh, but what we've realized uh, most recently, especially in 2019 with the Reproductive Health Act, 
there was this ramping up on both sides of the aisle when it came to what was going to happen with this issue. And there was so much uh, venom, vitriol, hatred on both sides, and a lot of passion, rightly so, again. But the the hope with with this documentary was to provide um, true information, not propaganda, about where we are, um, how we got here historically, what laws led up to us being here, how did the rhetoric become what it is, and what exactly happened in an abortion, and also how do we, um, whether you're a pro-life or pro-choice, have these conversations that will bridge the divide and, as you said before, bring about some sort of of um, humanity, empathy, understanding, uh, it, even if not agreeance, which we understand that's not going to happen, but there needs to be a way we can talk about this and have and be deeply convicted, but also be compassionate even in our conviction. This is such a highly divisive season that we find ourselves in. I really want to commend you for taking up one of the most controversial issues Mm -hmm. of our day and to attempt to do it in a way that doesn't just say I'm a pro-life man and this is what my convictions are. But you sought to engage in genuine conversation to help us understand one another. For those of us who are pro-life and I am pro-life, I've been involved in the pro-life movement here in my community for many years. And those who are on the other side of the issue, we so often vilify one another to the point that we've lost any possibility of persuasion because we don't talk to yeah. each other and we we have made villains of of each other. So how did you go about these 30 interviews that span the whole uh, divide on the subject of abortion? Yeah. <clears throat> well, the goal was definitely to, to hear voices from different areas of American life. So we spoke to people that had worked in abortion clinics. We spoke with people who have actually performed abortions. we spoke to post-abortive uh, women and men, uh, spoke to people in academia, uh, people that are in uh, medicine, uh, uh, people that um, are in politics, spent, spent some time on Capitol Hill speaking with uh, different senators, congressmen and women uh, on both sides of the aisle, uh, went to New York, Chicago, uh, New Orleans, uh, several, D.C., as I mentioned before, to just get the heartbeat uh, of America. And and quite honestly, it was, um, you know, but we have a lot more, I would say, pro-life voices, uh, but we do have some very, very strong pro-choice voices, even speaking with uh, a, a, a senator, a New York State senator, who actually co-sponsored the Reproductive Health Act. Uh, she was willing mm-hmm. to speak with us. And, and in doing this, you know, we're able to hear the why. I think a lot of times, uh, especially with this issue, um, if you look at cable news or uh, you, you hear the rhetoric around it, we don't really get to, to the why people do or think what they think. We just get to, okay, you're in that corner, I'm in that corner. And so part of bridging the gap is understanding the why. And then you can understand how you, as a pro-life community, can address those several different whys that people have uh, and the reasons why why they have uh, decided to terminate the pregnancies. Well, again, this is such a strategic time when people find themselves with more time on their hands than they've had in a very long time to give them an opportunity to sit down and watch a a documentary that covers this issue in a compassionate way and compels us to look on it moving forward as something other than a reason to shake my fist in someone else's face. But how can I be constructive? How can I recognize the humanity, even in my opponent, and move forward? Um, Who are some of the folks, and it's an impressive lineup, who are some of the Mm -hmm. folks that you feature in Divided Hearts of America? Well, some of the folks we talk to are, are pretty well-known pro-life voices, people like uh, Alveda King and uh, Dr. Ben Carson, you know, especially talking to somebody like him who, uh, from a medical standpoint, mm-hmm. 
is one of the brightest doctors ever to uh, come from this country, you know, being that he's operated on, on um, babies in utero and kind of hearing his journey and how his opinions have changed from uh, how he used to think about abortion to where he thinks about now. We spoke with uh, Senator Tim Scott, another one um, on Capitol Hill. We spoke to people like Carter Sneed, who is uh, uh, in the ethics department at Notre Dame, uh, and even spoke to, as I mentioned before, um, men who have been affected, but also women who have had multiple abortions, um, but but through that have you know healed and are actually very active uh, in in pro life advocacy. Uh, you know, I think that a large part of this is understanding that four out of ten women in our church pews are post abortion, and mm-hmm. so when you think about that, and you think about the fact that. Most people you know know someone or have themselves been involved with an abortion. Uh, how we speak about these people, um, it, we have to do so in a way that is uh, loving um, and forgiving and not condemning because they, many of them already feel condemned even yes. inside of the places where they should be being restored. Yes, so true. We're talking about Divided Hearts of America, which is currently streaming on SalemNow.com. And let me encourage you, this is a great opportunity to think constructively about this subject and how moving forward as we have more freedom of navigation around the country, how we can respond and treat one another in the midst of this controversy. What is the goal of this film? Obviously, you want to inform your viewers, uh, but what do you hope that we, we gain from sitting down and really thinking about abortion and how it's impacted our country and individuals in our communities? Yeah, the, well, I, I want people to, we want people to leave uh, from watching or get up from, from streaming this documentary, uh, thinking about this topic in, in some different way than before, but also being motivated uh, to, to engage and to and have a more of a sense of urgency. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes, sometimes we are lackadaisical. Sometimes, in a in a battle like this that has drug on for so many years, something that seems like it's maybe hopeless that there's there's no end in sight, uh, we get lackadaisical. We throw our hands up and feel like we can't make a difference. But um, I have good friends, uh, one of which I interview in the film, an author named Randy Alcorn, uh, who talks yes. about the fact that we can all do something and. Everything that we do is important. Never feel like you are one person, you are one church, you are one community, and you have no ability to affect change. That's simply not true. And so that's one thing I want people to walk away. I want people to be motivated. I also want people to realize um, the the, the horrors that abortion is. Um, We talk about it in ways sometimes as uh, women's rights, which we all want women to have rights for sure. We want them to be respected and protected, no doubt. Um, it's also always termed in, in, in um, uh, terminology such as, you know, lump of cells, fetus, that sort of things, uh, um, to kind of take away or distract from what actually goes on in some of these procedures. And so throughout the film, we talk about exactly what is this? What are the different methods um, of terminating that happen? Uh, we speak with people who have actually performed these procedures. And so, you know, I want people to be informed, as, as we mentioned before, but most importantly, um, there has to be uh, a mode of, of not necessarily agreeing, but I want people who are on the fence uh, to make a decision for life. We want lives to be saved and not just lives in the womb. We're talking about lives outside of the womb. We're talking right. about women and men who are facing these decisions. We want their lives to matter because we know that we all walk around stamped with the image of our creator. 
That's right. Uh, I appreciate that the documentary gives us the history of the laws uh, that we have seen, both the state and then ultimately the Supreme Court decisions that uh, brought us to this current pass. It's extremely well done. It's tastefully done. There may be segments when the littler ones need to, you know, go do something else. But this is a much needed <laughs> look at abortion in America that has divided the country. Again, it, the documentary is titled Divided Hearts of America. It's streaming live on SalemNow.com. Let me encourage you to make some appointment watching. You decide Saturday night, this is what we're doing, or Monday evening or mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, make a point to see this film. It's important to you. It's important to the young people in your household. And I believe believe it's important for the nation. Uh, ben Watson, thank you so much for the work that you have done. You've invested a great deal into this project, and I think it certainly has, has paid off, and I hope many of our listeners, and if not all of them, will watch Divided Hearts of America, streaming live now at SalemNow.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. I so appreciate the time, and thank you for allowing me to come on and talk about the film. You're absolutely welcome. Uh, ben, again, uh, Ben Watson, who has invested a tremendous amount into this film. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. James, can you believe we are 11 days away from Election Day? Oh, it seems like, yeah, no, I can't. I, I mean, the, the question will be, of course, uh, it's kind of like Christmas every year. You know how it, of course, this year being the exception. Where, uh, you know, it's like, oh, it's August 5th. Uh, look, Fred Myers has trees set up, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, how much break will we get this time? Will the ads for the next election start in February? So, I mean, I, you know, it, it feels like it's been going on forever, really, because it has. <laughs> well, that's true. And because we're uh, on quarantine, we probably are being exposed to a lot more of it than we otherwise would. The truth is there is an election day, an official day in which the ballots are supposed to be cast and counted, but this time it's going to be an election season because in some areas, uh, absentee ballots can be received after election day and counted and added to the election um, after November 3rd. That's going to you know, spread things out. There's no question that whoever happens to win the election is going to contest its outcome on a variety of uh, grounds, and uh, both sides already have plenty of attorneys set up to challenge whatever uh, they think might change the outcome if they or uh, sustain the, the outcome, uh, depending on what that is. So it's going to be a season. I've read just recently from one of the more radical organizations in our community. They're already planning. Uh, I think it was a 14 day season. I'm going to talk about this on Monday, a 14 day period of unrest following the election. And, you know, the assumption is if Donald Trump wins the election, there's going to be unrest. Well, the truth is they've decided it's going to happen. It doesn't matter who wins because um, Joe Biden, he isn't radical enough. And they mentioned some of the reasons why. Uh, so there's going to be unrest, how, whatever the outcome is. Uh, so it's going to be a season. And my guess is we're going to see examples of that very thing in various places around the country. Law enforcement, as I mentioned yesterday, they're preparing for it in some of the major cities and not so major cities like Portland um, as well. So It'll be interesting to see what happens, and I think we need to gird our loins for whatever the outcome's going to be, because it won't be the end of the story uh, for those who are dissatisfied with uh, whatever direction we're taking, unless it is a radical shift to the left. So we shall see. But I don't want to end with more serious political news. It's just a reminder that we can be praying that we are prepared for whatever the outcome might be. But I wanted to tell you about a Malaysian 
student whose cell phone was stolen while he was sleeping. I'm not sure if he was indoors in his private residence, but he tracked it down to the culprit, which was a monkey who took a photo and a video. In fact, a series of them. These were selfies with the device before abandoning the thing. Literally took selfies. Well, this 20-year-old said Wednesday that his phone was missing from his bedroom. When he woke up on Saturday, he found the phone's casing under his bed, but there was no sign of robbery in the house. Um, uh, When his father saw a monkey the next day, he launched a search in the jungle behind their house using his brother's phone to uh, call the device. He found it covered in mud under a palm tree, but a bigger surprise came when he checked the, uh, the phone, and he found a series of monkey selfies and videos recorded on the phone. Now, was this inadvertent? Did the monkey know what he was doing? Uh, he says his his uh, uncle was joking that maybe the monkey took some selfies with the phone. So when he checked, that had actually happened. He said he was curious why the monkey took the phone and not the camera or other things in his room. He said the primate must have thought that it was food uh, and it had a colorful case. But nonetheless, he managed to take some photos. Most of the images were blurry, but some showed the monkey's face. So maybe they can track him down. One of the videos taken uh, from the uh, uh, the phone was on top of a at the very height of a tree, showing glimpses of the monkey opening his mouth and appearing to try to eat the phone. My house is now in total lockdown, says the uh, owner of the phone, adding that he didn't want to repeat that incident. Now, wouldn't it be just a little bit scary to think that a monkey made his way into your house while you're sleeping and stole your phone? I've been to uh, to India, and monkeys can be very – it's not – unique to India, but they can be very aggressive. And I remember when we were walking around in some areas, we were warned to be careful about how we held our purses and and not to be isolated in different things that we might have with us because these monkeys had trained themselves to recognize, you know, if you're drinking something or eating something, they'll just come and take it from you or take your purse from you or whatever you might be carrying. So they, um, they can adapt to being around people. Taking selfies, that's a little above what I would have expected. Yeah, I mean, I'd really want to know what you know. What's important to a, a monkey and a cell phone? I mean, do they want a good camera? Do they want a good data plan? <laughs> I mean, you know, do they? Yeah. You know, uh, what particular? You know, do they want unlimited data? I mean, you know, do they want five G? Um, that's really important, I think, to ask the monkey these days. And of course, obviously, yeah. you know, what's your preferred carrier? There you go. Yeah. Good. Good point, James. Yeah, I thought we'll so. We'll have to. I mean, if they can track down that particular monkey whose face was seen on the camera, that would be uh, important to ask. Well, a student in Taiwan broke a Guinness World Record when he was able to bounce a soap bubble 290 times on his hand before it popped. Now there is a skill. 290 times a single soap bubble before it popped. We could do that. I think that's real impressive. We could try that. That's something we might, might be able to pull off. We have, I mean, it's pretty easy to get the supplies going. It's not that expensive. <laughs> so even if we fall flat on our face, hey, we got clean dishes. Well, <laughs> the Taiwanese student said he became interested in bubble performance. It's, I guess that's a thing, bubble performance. Uh, after seeing a video online of someone else attempting the record, and he started to practice for his own attempt. That's how bored we all are. Well, Guinness yes. tweeted a video showing his official attempt. He was able to complete 290 bounces with a single bubble, enough to compare, uh, to capture rather the uh, the record. Well, that's impressive. Extremely 290 impressive. bounces. Yeah, we're probably not going to try that. No. Well, I got a bit of uh, sad news for you. Peacock Lane, which has been a tradition in Portland for generations, 
Uh, Portland's Christmas Street has canceled their holiday light display because of COVID-19. Now, you can drive your car past it, so I would like to think that, you know, you close it to pedestrians but keep it available for uh, for cars, but Peacock Lane billed as Portland's Christmas Street will not host its annual holiday light display this year, citing COVID-19 regulations and health concerns. Well, the move was announced on Thursday. It calls off a holiday tradition that has for decades attracted crowds to uh, four residential blocks in southeast Portland between Stark and Belmont. When I was a little kid, my dad would load us up in the car and we would go to Peacock Lane. And there was another one, the name of which I can't remember, but that's been a tradition for decades. We are saddened that we will not be able to light up the lane this year, but we as a community felt it was best to cancel this year's activities for everyone's health and safety. The organizers wrote in a Facebook post, the cancellation comes as Oregonians prepare to navigate Halloween, the holiday season in the COVID-19 age. Many holiday season staples are bound to be significantly changed or canceled altogether this year. A variety of regulations aiming at uh, reducing the transmission of the coronavirus remain in place throughout the state, as we all know, including those regarding crowd size. Well, the state has been holding relatively steady for the past week with an average COVID-19 case count around 350 a day. Oregon officials are expected to release new uh, modeling uh, on Friday, and I think um, that will happen between our taping the show and the show being heard, but those numbers will be made available. Well, sad news, but a, I think a foretaste of things to come. Well, we're out of times, James. I do want to thank you for producing today's program. Clark Hilton for engineering and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.